Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. My name is Sam Bradford. I'm bringing this show to you live from 631. And uh, how is everybody doing today? The name of this program is going to be called Covenant Relationship. That's going to be the theme of the show. And I hope to bring all aspects of relationship with God through the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and try to tie things all together, follow the red tape all the way through Adam, all the way through Christ. So thanks for joining. Let me give a little introduction here. Well, first of all, my name is Sam Bradford. I'm calling from the 631, which is New York. Um, I am a preterist, covenant creationist, and I do not believe in hell. I do not torture. And uh, hopefully we get all through that as these shows go on. So let me give you an introduction about how I want the show to go and how I want to do this. Okay. The theme of the Bible is nakedness. What is nakedness? Nakedness represents sin. Everyone sinned. Everybody's naked. Notice what was said about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, toward the end. They were naked, and they did not know, or they were not ashamed. Wasn't until they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were aware of their nakedness. Eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil made them aware of their sin, and they were ashamed of their sin, so they hid themselves. And that is the theme of the entire Bible. It's because of nakedness. God set forth a plan that was from the foundation of the earth to clothe and to cover the nakedness from Adam all the way through. Was everybody, did everyone need their sin taken away? The only people who need their sin taken away are those who have their sins imputed onto them. So who had their sin imputed onto them? Adam and Eve, and Adam, and all those who are aware of God's law. By the way, I'd like to throw out my phone number in case anybody wants to interact with me via text, questions, comments, or anything. There you go, 631 so 631-402-7515. 631-402-7515. Questions, comments, anything you want to say, go right on ahead there and say it. Okay, let's get back to the nakedness. I want to start with Genesis 3, because that's where we first find these two people being naked. Okay, God brought Adam into covenant relationship. Threw him in the garden, which garden represents relationship, told him to, told him to tend to it and keep it. Adam and Eve were naked, and they didn't know. Well, how do we know that Adam and Eve had sinned, but their sin wasn't imputed onto them? Paul says, before the, before, there was sin in the world before the law. But where there is no law, one's sin cannot be imputed onto them. So we see here that Adam and Eve, before law got established, that they had sinned but there was no law to tell them that they had sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is an archery term 
that's using archery, obviously. When a person was shooting a bow and arrow and they had a target to shoot at, when they missed the target, that target was called, missing the target is called sin. Therefore, Adam and Eve and anyone before Adam and Eve, they had no target to tell them what was right or wrong in God's eyes. So God establishes law with, with, now how do we know that God established his law with Adam or if God had a covenant with Adam? We turn to the book Hosea, chapter 6, verse 7. And Hosea gives us a little clue about that. But like Adam, spoken about Israel here, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So Israel is transgressing the covenant just like Adam was. So we know that Adam had a covenant with God, and we know that Adam had God's laws as well. We know that Adam knew right from wrong according to God's laws, because when Cain killed his brother, he knew that it was wrong. Think anything was wrong, or didn't know that it was wrong to kill, and how was God justified by kicking him out of the land? It's the same concept as for those of us who have kids. If we don't tell our kids our rules, then we can't punish them when they, when they do things wrong. It's only when we punish them, I mean, it's only when we tell them our laws or our rules that when they break them, we can punish them. We can punish them. So, Adam was under law, and Adam had two trees to choose from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. These two trees represent covenant. Adam had access to eternal life if he didn't break the law. The tree of life was there. Once he sinned, he was kicked out of the garden and did not have access to eternal life anymore because he sinned. Turn with me. We see that Adam, I mean that Abraham was also under law. Let me just turn here. Going to go to Genesis 26, verse five, I'll verse 4 and 5. And I will make your descendants multiply as stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Oh, Abraham had to get these laws, the statutes, and commandments from somewhere. They go all the way down through Adam. Adam was the first covenantal man God called out to spread light into a dark world. So, keep going with this theme of nakedness here. We see scriptures, we see many scriptures throughout the Old Testament that hark upon this nakedness. Paul gives us a pretty good idea of Genesis chapter 3 and the nakedness that the scripture speaks of. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Where Paul talks about the two covenants. Comparing the old covenant to, to the new covenant. 
For if we know that our earthly house is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. I was talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant. They groan in that old covenant. For we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So now Paul's going back to Genesis. They're naked under the old covenant. They have a temporary clothing. Animal sacrifice covers their sin. But when they die, they stand before the Lord naked. They want to be clothed after death as well. For we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, had it been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Genesis chapter 3. What did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? And Lord God, Genesis 3, 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And what's one of the first thing that God said to him? Who told you that you were naked? Well, they knew after they ate a tree that they were naked. They were aware of their sin. They hid themselves in the presence of God because they were embarrassed and they were ashamed. So, reading on, if we indeed have it been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, old covenant, they're groaning under the old covenant, so it is not taken away. The relationship with God is related to that temple. They can't go behind the veil. So they're groaning big time. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that morality may be swallowed up by life. At that present time, life under that old covenant system, they have no they have no mortality. Once they're dead, that's it. They're dead. They are awaiting judgment. And there's only the clothes of Christ that covers their nakedness can take can take away their sin so they can go into true holy holy behind the veil. Then mortality may be swallowed up by life. Verse 5, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So in that old covenant system, they have relationship separation in the garden. What, what is one of the things, what is the thing that God told Adam? If you, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They suffered spiritual separation, relationship death. They were separate from God. Under that old system, they are out of the presence of God. Have relationship with God through temple and animal sacrifice, but animal sacrifice and the blood of bulls and goats for Hebrews does not take away the sin, does not affect the worshiper, as Paul would say. While we are at home in the body, we ask from the Lord. Verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, We are well confident, yes, well-pleasing, rather, to be absent from the body than to be pleasant from the Lord. Paul wants to get out of that old covenant system, which when they die, they stand before the Lord naked, and he wants to be clothed with the garments of righteousness. little insight, which tells us exactly what Genesis chapter 3 is talking about, the nakedness of God. Under that old covenant system, they were naked as well. They couldn't... They're sacrifice sacrificial system could not take away sin either. They were bound by it. 
And the verse here, which of course you can't find now, that talks about what they can't do because of their nakedness. They can't go up to the steps of the temple lest their nakedness be exposed. Maybe it's in Leviticus. Let's check out Leviticus. All right. And as usual, my work Bible is not the same as my home Bible. But all right, we'll we'll bypass that one for now. <laughs> Excuse me. Revelation three eighteen. Jesus talks about nakedness as well. And this is a one hour show. Should end at one o'clock. Revelation three eighteen. Okay. Revelation three eighteen. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with the eyes of saliva that you may see. So we see that this nakedness is throughout the entire Bible, nakedness, representing sin, standing before the Lord with our sin exposed. That's what they were under. Now, $50 million question is, what about our sin? Are we naked? Do we have to worry about standing before the Lord naked? Well, I surmise you that we don't, and here's why. Our sin is not imputed onto us. We weren't given the command and had to follow laws, rules, and regulations like Adam was. Once Adam sinned, his sin was always there. He couldn't go behind the veil because his sin was there. Israel, same exact thing, the nation of Israel. Their sin that they did, imputed onto them, was not taken away. They needed their sin to be taken away. Today, our sin is not imputed onto us. There is no need to take any sin away because the imputation of that sin is not there. So when we come into relationship with God through Christ, we, our sin is not imputed onto us, therefore there is no sin in the kingdom. Now, when Adam got kicked out of the garden, he got kicked out of the holies of holies. And I'll give that shout out to the 910. The garden represented temple. There's a lot of temple language in the garden. And Adam was in the holies of holies, pretty much. He had direct access, direct relationship with God. When he sinned, he got kicked out, wasn't allowed back in. Question from the 713. No, we're not born sinless. We sin. Everybody sins. It's just that when we come into relationship with God in the new kingdom, our sin is not imputed onto us. 
under law, their sin was imputed onto them because their sin could not be taken away. Everybody outside of law sinned, but their sin wasn't imputed onto them because they were, there was no law to tell them that they were sinning. So we today, in our list, we sin, but it's the imputation of the sin. I think that's the mark that Paul is trying to make when, when he talks about that, I mean, in, um, in the book of Romans. There was sin in the world before the law, but where there is no law, sin cannot be imputed. Therefore, there's no reason for me to get into trouble. In God's eyes, because he didn't tell me. The same analogy with the kids. The same analogy with your kids. You cannot punish your kids if you didn't tell them right from wrong. So today, our sin is unimputed onto us. That's how there's no, no sin in the kingdom. Let me read that verse for you in Paul. In Romans, Romans chapter 5. I'll read, thir- I'll read 12 and 13. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, which is Adam, and death through sin. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So Paul's stressing that point. Sin is only imputed when you're under law. They were under law and they sinned. That sacrificial system that they had, animal sacrifice, and, and everything that they had to do, that didn't take away their sin, but it covered their sin in this life. When they died, they could not go before the Lord into the holies of holies because their sin was imputed onto them, wasn't, didn't take it away. Blood and bulls of ghosts didn't take any sin away. They covered their sin, and that's what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians chapter 5. They're clothed now, but once they leave this earthly life, they're uncovered. They stand before the Lord naked. Paul wants to be clothed with the garments of righteousness so that when, they, when he does die or when point comes when the old covenant system ends, their sin is unimputed unto them. Their sin is taken away. We who in life remain, we'll meet them in the air. Those dead ones, they get resurrected. Their sin gets taken away. God separates the sheep from the goats. New kingdom is established. No more sin in the new kingdom because it's not imputed onto them anymore. It is taken away. <clears throat> so what does it mean for us today? Well, today... We are in the new kingdom. We are not under law. We're under grace. And we have access to the holies of holies. We have eternal life now. Those under the old covenant system did not have eternal life. They were waiting for eternal life. Daniel was told he was going to go to sleep with his fathers and he was going to rise to his inheritance. That is eternal life. That's what we have now. We're in the same kingdom with them. So when we die, we're going to go to the same place Daniel is, and all the apostles, and all those old covenant saints, and new covenant saints. So that's going to be pretty cool. What it looks like. Who knows? Question from the 713. Who is saved today, all or some? Well, the only people who... Well, let's go take that word saved 
and hark upon it for a second. Who needs to be saved and why? What do they need to be saved from? Well, they need to be saved from their sin because their sin was imputed onto them. I don't want to use that word, word saved today because our sin is unimputed onto us, so we don't really have anything to be saved from. So I like to use relationship, covenant relationship. Came in a shell, came in a shell. I like to use that. To me, that's more better fit than actually being saved. We don't need to be saved from anything. Those who are outside of Christ now are just in darkness, and then when they come into Christ, they come out of darkness, they come into Christ. That's what Jesus told Paul on the road to Damascus. I want you to send to the Gentiles to take them out of darkness into the light and to forgive their sins because their sins were imputed unto them as well. They weren't under law like, like Israel, but they were aware of God. So their sins were imputed unto them as well. So those who accept Christ today have relationship with God, which brings it all the way back to Adam, because that's what Adam had. You might say sin got in the way, because that's exactly what happened. Sin got in the way, which ruined the relationship that Adam had with God. Therefore, now that that relationship is restored, and now we have what Adam had. Instead of holding holes behind the veil, except no sin to be imputed onto us. The blood of Christ takes away all that, and that's where we are today. So now it's a matter of who has relationship with God. not a matter of who is saved, but who is in the kingdom, who is not in the kingdom. The way to get to God is through Christ. Christ is the priest, the high priest, that makes intercession for us. To bring a full circle to the old covenant, angels mediated that old covenant. Now we have Christ mediating the new covenant that brings it full circle, everything back to Christ, everything back to new covenant. So I hope I answered that question. It's not a matter of being saved because we don't need to be really saved from anything. It's a matter of having relationship with God through Christ. Outside of Christ, you can't have any relationship with God. So it is through Christ that we have relationship, no sin in the kingdom. Rather, go back to the old covenant system, through law, all the way back to Adam, sin being imputed, sin being imputed, waiting for a day where that sin will be taken away so that we can have relationship restored back to Adam. What can we talk about next? Why don't we go to keeping up with this gift in here? All right. Covered that. All right. Why don't we talk a little bit about Preterism and covenant and creation go hand in hand. I like to tie Old Testament to New to New Testament as much as I possibly can. Starts with Adam, first Adam, 
ends with the last Adam. Starts with sin, ends with removal of sin. To have an incorrect view of Adam is going to really botch things up at the end. I come from a futurist background, was raised in the full um, full gospel Pentecostal movement, Holy Ghost movement, tongues and fire and miracles left and right, and person sneezes and the sneeze went away and holy cow, God did a miracle. He took your sneeze away. That's how it's raised. Holy Ghost movement. Everyone goes to the one corner of the church because that's where the Holy Spirit is, and the and the pastor says, oh, the Holy Spirit's up there, and everyone rushes up there, trying to get a piece of the Holy Spirit. Sunday Christian. Miserable the rest of the week, end up coming to church for that for that high. So, <laughs> parallelism is essential because it lays out for us what Jesus did then for who, and what we have now. Why well, lay out what we have now before? We have relationships like Adam did with God. Through Christ, I guess Adam could have had that because the tree of life was there. If he didn't eat of the tree, he would live for a thousand years, eternal life, but he didn't. Instead, he died, died short. So, preterism brings everything full circle. We are saved, we have relationship with God in the temple because everything's complete. We are grafted into. Israel's salvation. Israel's sin isn't taken away, then what do we have? We're actually the same as they are. Futurism today teaches that when you die, you have to go wait. Why do you have to wait? Well, because it's not done. They're waiting for the second coming. Well, what's the point of the second coming? Jesus has to complete the, the duties of the high priest. He's got to come out from behind the veil, just like the high priest would, sacrificing the animals. If Jesus didn't come out of the high, Jesus didn't come out of the holies of holies, the acceptance of the sacrifice, then Israel's sin as a nation, at that point in time, is taken away, and therefore we do not have direct access to the holies of holies, because their sin is imputed on them, not taken away. Therefore, no one is allowed to go behind the veil. Hebrews, the way in the holies of holies was not yet made manifest while that first temple or system was still standing. So if that first system is not gone, and you have so many different theories today, depending on what future issue you talk about or talk to, the 70 weeks has a gap, it's going to start up again, not start up again, uh, the last week still hasn't happened, the old covenant system is put on hold, because now we're in the time of the Gentiles. None of those things add up, make any sense. Either we, either it's all finished, and we, when we die, we go to the Father, or we have to wait. Now, if we have to wait, we've got all kinds of problems. Why do you have to wait? Did Jesus take away sin? If he did, then what's, what's the point of waiting? If the veil was torn in two and access into the Holy of Holies was granted, why do we have to wait? So you get many different confusing, all kinds of different theories from all different people, depending on who you talk to. 
But Jesus coming out from behind that veil tells the waiting congregation that it's all done. Just like the high priest coming out from the Holy of Holies let the waiting congregation of Israel know that their sins were forgiven or were taken away or covered for that year. So that when we die, we have access to the Lord, relationship restored, back to Adam. Romans chapter 11 makes that completely clear. They are, the Gentiles, are grafted into Israel's salvation. I'll read a little bit of uh, Romans 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone are left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to bow. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to election of grace, and it's by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, but it is of works. It is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel is not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest are blinded? Just as written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not bear, to this very day, Paul's day, David says, let their table become a stash trap and a stumbling block, and a recompense to them, let their eyes be darkened, so that they do not see. For I speak to you, Gentiles, that it must not be apostle to the Gentiles, I may magnify my ministry. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So Gentiles are grafted into Israel. They become Israel. Paul, like Paul said, Paul is of Abraham's seed. Those who are not of Abraham's seed are not in Christ. They are not part of the kingdom. They, are not, they don't go from the old covenant body to the new covenant body. They get cast into hell. They get kicked out of the presence of God. And Gentiles who believe in Christ, they become Abraham's seed. So preterism brings everything full circle. Everything is complete. Everything is done. We no longer have to wait. We no longer have to go to Hades. Two parts, as, as I was taught. One part has those that are not in Christ. other part has those that are in Christ. So now that we have access to the holies of holies, one of the questions that I keep getting asked to people that I talk to is, well, what now? Pretty much said what now is. There's no longer any waiting. There's no longer any time lapse. When we die... We have direct access to God. That's where we go. And that is the tree of life in Genesis and the tree of life in Revelation in the kingdom, which is what we have access to. Okay. 
let's talk a little bit. I'm just going to get everyone the, the base here. About a little bit, and then as the weeks go on, we'll touch more and more on the subject. Covenant creation. Let's hit a little bit on that. What is it? Covenant creation is about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I did a little bit of covenant creation in Genesis chapter 3, where when we were told that Adam and Eve were the first people and that they were literally naked and they didn't realize that they were naked until they ate of an apple tree. And as a kid, you don't think about how that really doesn't make any sense. But as you get older and you study the scriptures, so they still have a ton of questions. You know, how can someone not know that they're naked? You either got clothes on or you don't got clothes another day. Genesis chapter 1. We were taught that Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of when God created hell, everything that we see, all the material things that we see, the entire universe. If we were to read that in a wooden literal sense, you got all kinds of problems. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read the first day for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then God told the light was good, and he divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and called the darkest night. So the evening and the morning was day one. Hebrew doesn't say first day, the Hebrew says, Day one. If you were to take that in a literal fashion of God creating the material world of what we see in an orderly fashion, because that's what people will tell you, that it's an orderly account of how God made everything. Well, in my eyes, from what we know today, we we got a couple problems. We got a couple issues with that. One, the earth was without form and void, and in darkness on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. You have liquid water first, and then God said, let there be light. Scientifically, how do you have liquid water without any light? And how do you have light without any sun? Where does the sun, where does the light come from if there's no, if there's no sun yet? And how do you have liquid water before you have any light? You got problems there. Now, the, the um, those people who take Genesis one to be material creation, they'll come with all kinds of excuses to say things. Well, God can do what He wants, and He's in control. And I'm and I say to them, I agree. God can do what He wants. It's obvious through Genesis one that He did what He wants. He can do anything. But that isn't the question. The question is, did He do that? Because if God can do anything He wants and that's going to be the reason you use, and everything is up for grabs. Well, God can use evolution. God can use aliens to plant humans on Earth. God can do anything at that point, and that's what your reason is going to be. But that's not the question. Did he do that? Is that what the text is saying? It's my theory that's not what the text is saying. The text is... is talking about the creation of temple, God's people. 
Genesis 1 is landed in the fashion of temple creation. Seven days of creating, six days of creating a temple for him to dwell in. <coughs> Pardon me. And on the seventh day he rests. I urge everyone to listen to uh, John Walton. Read a lot of John Walton. John Walton goes back to the ancient language, back to the culture, time frame, and flushes out a lot of things that are very familiar in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that he brings full, full circle. We go into another thing that's really not going to make much sense. Verse uh, 6, Genesis 1, verse 6, which is day 2, the, the, the beginning of day 2. Then God said, let there be a ferment in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters which are above the ferment, and it was so. So God called the ferment heaven, and the evening and morning were the second day. That means to, to, I think I skipped the verse. Waters from above and waters from below. We know that there's waters below, but there isn't really any waters above. Why does it mention waters from above and waters from below and a separation of waters from above and waters from below? Well, now we have to go back to the ancient mindset, to what they thought of their atmosphere, to what they thought things, what they thought the things that were around them were. They didn't know that we know today. Why is the sky blue? Well, we know today the sky is blue because the reflection of the light, reflection of the water, goes into the sky, makes it blue. The ancients didn't know that. So the only thing that, that they could come up with that makes sense in their minds would be, well, there must be waters above. But that must be water in the sky. Well, now the answer to themselves another question, well, why isn't that water falling all the time? Well, they say there must have been some kind of solid dome that separated the waters above and the waters below. And when you read a lot of language in the prophetic scriptures about the heavens opening and the sky receding like a scroll, this is all their mindset of what they thought was happening. They didn't know what thunder was. They didn't know where rain came from. They had no clue. They didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have today about what things are. So, yeah, that's curious of how if God is talking about the making of the material world that we see, why would God incorporate something that's not even true? Doesn't he know what he made? Because if he set everything in, a, in the scientific order, he should know that there is no waters above. Now, people would like to talk, I talk, and talk to many Christians who like to twist everything around and say, well, water is a cloud, it's mist, you know, and then it becomes water and, you know, no. If it was clouds, then he would say clouds. He didn't say clouds. They didn't know. So there are a lot of things that are wrong if we were to take Genesis chapter 1 as a material creation. Too many things that don't even fly in science. When you see all, all, all these debates on YouTube about creationism versus atheism or creationism, youngest creationism versus oldest creationism, none of them really have any legs to stand on. They all fall down because they only have either one or two legs. Furthermore, reading it from a literalistic standpoint, 
We go to verse 9. Then God said, let the waters of the heavens be gathered into one place. So the dry land appeared, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that that was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herbs that yield seed and fruit, tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the, and the tree that yields fruit. Whose seed is in itself, according to its kind, and God's way was good. So the evening and morning was the third day. Still yet with no sun, how do you have a 24-hour solar day? Moreover, how do you have plants and trees present on the earth without any sun? No photosynthesis to make, to give food for the plant. If God is the creator of these things, he's making an order, you would think God would know what his plants need. For those of for those old earth creationists who take day ages, to me that's even worse. How do you have a million year old age day of plants without any sun? Because it would take millions of years for the next day when the suns and the stars are created then. You have too many controversing issues and too many things that just don't don't add up at all. Now, when we go to the last day, when we go to day six, we have God making man. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle. So God made male. God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. During the six days, you have the animals being made, the plants being made, and you have man being made on the last day. When you get to Genesis 2, you have another problem. You have another problem. Where, I'll just read it. Genesis 2, 4 and 5. field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, when the Lord God and had caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But he mist went up from the earth and wore the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and a little something to say about that. So now you have a complete flip-flop. Genesis chapter 1 talks about man being made last. Genesis chapter 2 talks about man being made first. They have not yet been able to put that together. But they will not abandon what they think which is another problem. They won't re-examine the scriptures. They won't re-examine what they were taught. They won't examine what history says. They won't examine what the ancient mindset is. So when we go to day seven, those of us who are familiar with temple creation and temple creation language, get to day seven, and it's a dead giveaway for anyone who reads day seven. Where is day seven? Okay. Okay. This the earth is good in six days. Okay. Chapter two. The heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he had rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And all. 
sorry, I got sidetracked. Okay, this is the history of the heavens and earth. When he was created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. We got a question from the 713. Didn't he really rest? No, he did not rest. In the ancient times, when a king is done building a temple and he rests in it, it's the same thing as saying he's ruling. So he's resting from the temple work, but now he's in the temple and he's ruling and reigning in the temple. That answer is that to 713. Well, in the last couple minutes, last couple minutes here, on a couple of mistranslations. Chapter 2, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. So that word host in the Hebrew is used for um, armies or it's talking about a massive amount of people. So if the host of them was finished, and that's talking about Genesis chapter 1, and the host would mean armies or massive amounts of people. Where was all the people that were created in Genesis chapter 1? We only see two being made, which is Adam and Eve. We get to verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth and the earth, heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Well, that word history should actually be generation. So this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Changes the complete meaning of the entire Genesis chapter 1. Generations are people. You don't have any other subject matter that would require the term generations to describe talking about people. So again, I smile to you that Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of God's temple and people. We know that the temple that God has now Jesus is the chief cornerstone of, and the body and believers build up that temple. And that is us. So this, these generations of that temple being built, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two, evening and morning, day three, all eras in time through history that ends Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, coming out of the temple to the waiting congregation to let them know that their sin is not taken away. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, the day that they were waiting for. So we will get into more detail of these things and also we will get to break down all these days and go through scripture so that I can prove my case about what Genesis chapter 1 is and what it is not by what we were talked about, what, what we were taught all these years. Anything else that was incorporated in my teaching as a kid. So we're pretty much at the end of the show here. Does anybody have any questions that they would like to ask? All right, I am told I have 11 minutes to go. So, let's do a little bit here on, let me just turn it and find here, read real quick, let's see, Exodus 20, I got that marked down on my notes here. I bet you that was that verse that I was looking for that I couldn't find. 
Let's see, and I bet you it is. Okay, yes, of course. Now I find that verse I was looking for that I couldn't find before. Going back to this nakedness and how it's also used in Scripture in that context of sin when they were building um, the temple, the, the, the tabernacle, the, the traveling tabernacle. Exodus 20, verse 25 and 26. Then you shall make me an altar of stone. You shall not build it of hewed stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nature so really gives you an idea about life under that old covenant system on how that sin was imputed onto them, how important it was from God's eyes that that nakedness may not be exposed and God lays on to them because plenty of times in the Old Testament he, they would just get killed. The people who carried the Ark of the Covenant, they touched it and God told them not to, they killed them. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and they won't even an animal or an elf come near that mountain, God was going to kill them because their nakedness was still exposed. Come near. Well, that was that verse I was trying to find before. Of course, I found now. I covered Paul talking about Genesis chapter 3. I've covered, we did Genesis 2 and 25. We did that about Adam and Eve being naked. We talked about in Revelation when God goes talking to the churches. He's going to cover their nakedness. So why don't we do a little bit here on oh, what we got? Nine, nine, eight, nine to eight minutes left. Let's go to First Corinthians 15. Let's do talk about what Paul says about Adam, the breath of life breathed into his nostrils, from what we were taught to what we have now. I was taught that. Adam was made from the literal dust, and God breathed his breath of life into Adam, and Adam became alive, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, and so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, and the last man Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards, the spiritual, the first man was of earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also, so also are those who are made of dust. As And as in a heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of, of man of dust, so shall we also bore the image of heavenly man. And once again, they had borne the image of Adam because their sin was imputed. And once that sin is taken away, then they are out of Adam and they are in the body of Christ. So they bore that image of that first man. Now once their sin is taken away, now they bore the image of the heavenly man. But what does Paul say about that breath of life, that living spirit that Adam became? Adam was in his natural state. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, darkness. The state of mankind was in darkness. It wasn't until God said, let there be light, which is Adam, 
preaching into a dark world. Adam was in darkness as well. When God took Adam from the dust and breathed into his nostrils, nostrils the breath of life, Adam became spiritually alive. It wasn't until Adam became, I know the term spiritually dead really doesn't go over well and do justice, but once Adam sinned, that relationship was severed. So Adam was in his natural state, no knowledge of God. When God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that's when Adam became alive. Now, how does the Bible use that term alive in Scripture? Well, those who are not in Christ, they're either dead or in darkness, but when you're in Christ, you become alive, spiritually alive. You have spiritual life. And that's exactly what Genesis is, Paul is telling us that Genesis is talking about. Adam became spiritually alive. Um, in Ezekiel 37, God is about the um, the dry bones. God's been going to do that same thing to Israel. He's going to breathe into them the breath of life. He's going to make Israel who was dead, dead in their sin, dead in their trespasses, was going to give them spiritual life and breathe into them, into their nostrils, the breath of life as well, and make them alive. So we close the program. Any other questions from anybody? Thanks for the 713. Tells me that I got six minutes left. No questions so far. Again, I'll throw out my cell phone number there again. And I'll give you my email address. If you want to call or text me anytime during the day, you can. I will answer any and all questions. Back to you. Phone number once again is area code 631-402-7515. That's 631-402-7515. And my email address is sammyboy123 at gmail.com. And I will spell that for you. It's S-A-M-M-Y-I-E-B-O-Y-123 at gmail.com. Someone wants me to sing to end the show off. I'm going to do that because it sounds like cats in the alley fighting over a female cat eight. So I wouldn't do that to you guys. Um, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about myself, about how I was brought up, like I said before. I was brought up in the uh, Pentecostal movement and um, been a Christian since uh, as far as I can re- remember. Grew up in a Christian household. I am 40 years old. I live here on the eastern end of Long Island. That is my area code 631. Um, I've been a preterist for about going on five years and how I became a preterist. Three minutes left. Thank you, 713. Uh, listening to Hank Hanegraaff. And before that, if the 713 could give me uh, three minutes, two minutes, one minute, that'd be good. Um, I did most of my Bible reading in the room in the dark. And uh, I was reading First Corinthians chapter 4, the usual rapture passage, and I read, read, read the comments like I always do, and they made mention that this was 
the rapture before the tribulation, and that kind of got me thinking. Well, it didn't really make much sense. Did any tribulation? Did mention any tribulation? It just said, you know, those who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air. So I listen to Hank Hanegraaff as I usually do. Yes, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man. He's all right. He's an all millennialist. Thinks that preterists are heresies, heretics. But we we get that called a lot. Two minutes. Thank you very much. Seven one three. So one day a caller called in Hank to Hank's program and wanted to know a question about the rapture. Well, Hank said he didn't believe in the rapture, and I said, "Huh, pretty funny. I never heard that before. You know, I didn't know that there was people out there who didn't think that there wasn't going to be a rapture." Ninety seconds left. Just told me. So I ordered one of Hank Hank Hanegraaff's books called The Apocalypse Code. Um, I ended up leaving with and having more questions than I did answers. Then I got another book by Kai Kennegraff, edited by Steve Gregg, called Revelation Four Views. So they laid out the four major views of Revelation. Futurism, all millennialism, preterism, and uh, spir- uh, this, the spiritualist. I forget what, what views uh, that called where Revelation is progressive throughout history. So the seven churches aren't seven churches. Seven churches represent seven eras in Christian history, ultimately ending with the end of the world. So I became a partial preterist through that. Um, I found um, Kenneth Gentry and Gary DeMar and learned a lot from them. But then they were they began to be inconsistent in their teaching and doctrine as well. Well, we got ten fucking ten seconds left. I'd like to thank you very much. This is Sam Bradford, and I thank you for joining me today. And I hope to see you all on next Friday. Have a good have a good weekend, everybody.